just wanted to draw your attention to this white sheet that's in our weekly each week. It's a lovely sheet. If you're new to CNBC, this is a great way for you to get connected into our community here. There's all kinds of opportunities in this sheet uh, that you can get involved, ways you can sign up to connect yourself into things, to become part of prayer lists that our community has, or other opportunities to serve that we participate in. So if you'd help us out, whether you're with us online or in the building today, take a moment, uh, fill that sheet out. You can drop it in one of the boxes in the back as you leave today. Also, in the weekly this week, there's information about the great giveaway. You may have seen it. It's coming up in just a few weeks. One of our opportunities to reach our community and provide uh, lightly used items for folks that may need them. There's opportunities for you to volunteer and be part of the great giveaway as well. As many of you that would be willing to help, we will find a place for you. Don't worry. There's work to be done. Well, one of the great tasks of the follower of Jesus is to remain mindful to the that God is present and active within each and every moment of our lives. Now, we live in a world that's very loud. We live in a world that's filled with countless distractions. Anybody get distracted this week at any point in the week? And so it becomes a priority for the disciple of Jesus to maintain focus. Whether we're eating, whether we're sleeping, maybe we're doing laundry, washing dishes. We do a lot of laundry in our house. <laughs> or engaged in any other activity, our task in whatever we do is to glorify God, and in that, we're remaining mindful of the reality that he is present, active, and working. And then there was audio. <laughs> Wonderful. Let me just check my box here. Well, my box is off. Now, my box is on. So, it's far better for us to glorify the God who is actually present with us in our daily routines and activities than some God who remains far off and despondent to our needs. Our reality here on earth is a reality with a God who has named himself Emmanuel. God with us. And that should count for something. As he is present with us, we help others. Whether it's our children, whether it's our grandchildren, or our family members, or friends, or neighbors, or classmates, or co-workers, we help them become aware of God's living and active presence in our world. This is one of our primary tasks as followers of Jesus, helping others see reality. God is real. He is here. And he is working, and our lives should reflect and rehearse this reality in our every sphere of influence. We share this task, then, with the apostles of the New Testament, and more specifically today, we are reflecting on the words of Paul in his letter that's simply titled, Romans. Paul's letter to the hundreds of small house churches that were spread throughout Rome was a letter that was written to remind the churches of all that they had been given in Christ. 
It was a letter that was written to instill hope and confidence in the power and the effectiveness of the gospel. A letter that demonstrated how we all begin or start out in the same place. These are written words communicating how God in his divine sovereignty has provided a very active and present solution in the person of Jesus to lift us out of a formerly hopeless space and place us into a new and exciting reality. In chapters 1 through 11 of Paul's letter, he lays out the mercies of God. He's building specificity as he moves to chapters 9 through 11. Then, like a seesaw board on a fulcrum, Paul pivots. And in chapters 12 through 16, he seeks to convince, compel, and even coordinate how the church should function considering the mercies that we've been shown by God. It is chapter 12, this pivot point in Romans, where we're going to pick up today. It's a very familiar passage. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take them and turn now to Romans chapter 12. Perhaps they're on your phone and you want to take your phone off and take your phone and turn it on. We'll know that you're actually accessing the Bible on your phone and not texting your friends. But there are two questions we want to explore in our time together today. First, what are the decisive actions that set a church and or individual disciples of Jesus apart from those who are not yet his disciples? How are we demonstrating our awareness of God's active presence? What are then the ongoing actions glorifying to God that cause the church and or the individual disciples of Jesus to continue functioning effectively as those he has set apart in this world? Those are the questions we wish to explore today as we look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Before we read the text, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We approach it as a community on Sunday morning, knowing that in this, in some way, your spirit is alive, active, present, and prepared to use your word to apply to each and every one of us exactly what we need for our days ahead. Lord, we want to give you glory. We want to give you honor for this time. We want to thank you for being a God who is present Lord, we pray that you would keep us aware, keep us mindful of your presence, your active and working presence in our lives. Help us to not grow distracted, to not grow weary, to not grow complacent, apathetic, Lord, or to just lose sight of the reality that you love us. You care deeply for us. You know us better than anyone, better than we even know ourselves. And you care. Lord, help us to Bear one another's burdens in love, to serve one another, to lay down our lives as you've called us to do. And we pray your spirit would use the words of your text today to grow these things within us, that we might leave here changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Paul writing, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul has spent the majority of the first part of this letter recounting the great mercies that God has shown humanity. The greatest of these mercies has been demonstrated in the sending of his son, Jesus, into the world. And in this, Paul is raising the awareness of a young congregation, a congregation that is facing pressures both from within and from without. And the awareness that he is raising is that the God of all of history is alive and he's active and he's present with them in the challenges that they're facing now and that they will face in the future. And as Paul builds their awareness, God is growing within their community a confidence and a conviction that they indeed are a people who have been shown great mercy. And not only that, but in that, they've been given the great task to demonstrate and to also share that great mercy that they've been shown with others. And so just a brief perusal of the beginning of this letter. Romans 1, God's mercy is seen in a powerful and effective way as he presents the good news, good news that's hopeful, that humanity has been given a solution, that that solution is in Christ. Romans chapter 2 and 3, God's mercy demonstrated in the act of viewing all of humanity on a level playing field. We all sin. We all fall short. With God, there is no favoritism. Nothing of eternal reward comes as a result of our own merit or effort. Apart from Jesus, we are all condemned so that no one can boast. But oh then, the grace and the mercy of chapters 4 through 6. God's mercy demonstrated by a righteousness credited on our behalf, our justification. Secured by both the just and justifier, Jesus dying for the ungodly, demonstrating the love of God, the offer of eternal life that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. No longer enslaved to sin, God's mercy calls us into the service of righteousness. Then, chapter 7 and 8, they usher us quickly into this new relationship that we have with the law that we've been freed or released from. The law then is becoming a vehicle through which our own sin and our own inability is revealed or amplified. By God's mercy, the law, which is insufficient to save, still has effect and is having effect in our lives. And by that same mercy, for those who are in Christ, we no longer stand under the condemnation of the law. Being set free, called according to his purpose, 
empowered by his spirit that dwells within us, there is no longer any threat or separation for those who are in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? We all know Romans chapter 8 so well. No separation. Then chapters 9 through 11. God's mercy revealed to those who still reject or ignore his power and his presence. The reminder that it is by grace through faith that we are saved, both the Gentile and the Jew. And that this faith comes from the hearing of the word of God as it is preached. We all know this verse. Faith comes through hearing and hearing from what? The word of God. That God has ordered his word to continue to go forth and to have effect on those who are elect even still today. This so that those who have rejected him still might hear and respond, both Jew and Gentile. And through this great illustration and communication of God's abundant mercies from Romans 1 through 11, Paul expects to provoke a response from the collective churches in Rome and the individual believers who are making up these churches. It is a decisive response. It is one that should and must still be practiced by the church alive and active today. As we become aware of these great mercies, we live out an appropriate response. In view of God's mercies, the church, both as a body and as individuals, offers their bodies as a sacrifice. The reality, if God's mercies are still effectively reverberating today, then God's people must still respond in the manner described in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And friends, when we consider offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, it would be good for us to begin by honestly accepting the fact that this is both a very uncomfortable thought and action. Everything we know of sacrifices from the Old Testament to this point is that sacrifices always wind up Yeah. And death does not sound like an attractive proposition for us. If we sit here today and we're honest, even in view of God's great mercies, yet the state of dying is exactly what both Jesus and Paul have used to describe the life of a disciple of Jesus. In her powerful commentary on the book of Romans, Dr. Beverly Gaventa, distinguished New Testament scholar, states, quote, For Paul, grace is both utterly free and utterly costly. It demands everything, end quote. We recognize this uncomfortable reality when Jesus compels his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him. He is implying that our lives as disciples will come to be defined by attitudes and behaviors of self-sacrifice, self-denial, 
and general selflessness, even unto death. And the only way, church, the only way that we can effectively live out the sort of response that we are being called to is by the power of God. We're not doing this. We talked about this last week. If we get up every morning and try to do this by our own strength and by our own efforts, rah, I can do it. Splash the cold water on my face. Let's go. Right? It's not going to work. It is the Spirit who's alive and at work within each and every one of us. Paul iterates as much when he writes to the churches in Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And watch this. It is no longer I who live. That's a powerful statement. But Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As compelled by Christ, the disciple recognizes the mercies of God. And by the effective work of the Holy Spirit within us, we cast our bodies as living bodies upon the altar following the example of our Savior, Jesus. Now in Romans 12, Paul is going to describe this offering in three ways. He says that it is living. It's a living sacrifice. He says that it is holy, recognizing the reality that we've been called out and set apart. And then finally, because of the justification and righteousness bestowed on us by Jesus, our offering is also pleasing or acceptable to God. And all of these words, friends, that Paul assigns to the sacrifice of our bodies are words that make sense for those of us who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ, we are alive in the deepest and truest sense of life. Those who are in Christ, we're holy because he has made us holy. And those who are in Christ are pleasing and acceptable because Jesus' righteousness has become our righteousness. The life of worship is the life that is lived out with an effective and productive awareness that we are in Christ. All of our lives, even the most mundane tasks, we think about sleeping, eating, maybe reading, all of those things on the altar, alive, aware, ready to be useful for God's purposes. Recognition and response to God's mercies are decisive actions in the life that is lived in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. But Paul's going to suggest in verse 2 that there are, along with these decisive actions, 
also ongoing actions that communities of Christians and individual disciples are going to adopt so that they might effectively reflect the glory of the Lord in our world. Let's look at those ongoing actions. I want to read Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 again, but I want to do it as a practice with you today. Whenever we study the scriptures, one of the great habits that we can get into is we can take a number of different translations and we can lay them next to one another. Some of, some of us might like to lay a literal translation next to a, a dynamic equivalent, next to a paraphrase, and to read them from the minds of different translators. Every translation is an interpretation. So I want to read from J.B. Phillips' translation, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. He captures the essence of what Paul is saying to these churches so clearly. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Now here's verse 2. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. And as we begin to unravel what Paul identifies as the ongoing activities that define the life of a disciple of Jesus, we identify these activities in three different ways in accordance with our text. First, disciples of Jesus are being transformed. This is not a one-time thing, friends. Sometimes in some areas of, of the church and some places in the church is a teaching that this transformation is a one-time thing that happens suddenly and is not something that's ongoing. But the scriptures, in the way that they use the word and the verb, present it as something that is continual or ongoing in the life of a disciple. The Holy Spirit is at work. He is always at work. He's transforming us from the inside out, reforming our identity, our attitudes, our behaviors, our habits, even the patterns of our very lives. Writing to early Christians that were gathered in small house churches throughout the city of Corinth, Paul addresses the ongoing nature of our transformation and what it is accomplishing. This is his letter to 2 or this letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, at least his second. Verse 18, chapter 3. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit, who's alive and active within us, we, as both communities and individual believers, should be transforming into the image of Christ. That means our congregations, corporately, collectively, should be reflecting the image of Christ. That means, as individual believers, we should also be reflecting the image of Christ, looking, living, thinking more and more like Jesus every day. 
In a few weeks, we're going to cover Philippians chapter 2, where Paul is going to double down on this truth and give the church a very clear image of Jesus' mind and his attitude. The same mind and the same attitude that he's calling us to reflect. Our transformation comes, as Paul describes, from a renewing of the mind. Which again, I can't reiterate this enough, but I'm going to continue because I need to preach it to myself. It's not something that I can accomplish or achieve on my own efforts. By reading a lot of books and puffing up my own knowledge, it's not going to work. The Spirit is doing it as He is alive and active within me. And as I am submitted and obedient to His work. While we remain aware that our minds are being renewed by the power of God at work within us, we give credit to the Holy Spirit who's using the word of God and the disciplines of grace, disciplines that we've been called to, prayer, fellowship, caring for one another, sacrificial love to to mold and to shape and to transform us into the image of Jesus. Does this mean that we have no part? No. Of course not. We remain attentive. We remain attuned to the reality that God is at work. And we're grateful for this wonderful gift that we've been given in Christ. So we respond in obedience to what we have been called to do. To pray. To read the scriptures. To study together. To apply the scriptures. To come together as communities and love one another and bear one another's burdens. Our role then, our part, is to walk by faith, motivated by love, clinging to the great hope that we've been given in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit will do the rest. He will. And this is why Paul says that many things, but faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest is love. His words become the roadmap or the landmarks which we look for when we examine if true transformation is present in the life of someone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus. And this leads us to our second activity as presented in the text. Disciples of Jesus are practicing their faith and as they do, they are proving the faithfulness of God. Now, there are many ways in which disciples of Jesus practice or apply the faith that we've been given. Today, I want to focus on the ways that we do it here or that we prioritize here at CNBC. Some of you that have been here with us for a number of years now, uh, and and for me, it'll be five years in August here at CNBC. Time flies. It's kind of crazy to think that. But, But almost for that entire five years, we've had this trellis with us. And what this trellis does is it illustrates for the community here at CNBC the ministries or the ways that we prioritize the practice and the application of our faith. And on that trellis you'll notice that five of them are identified. Prayer, care, study, uh, global, and community. So we pray at CNBC. This becomes a major priority. It is our desire to be a congregation that's committed to prayer, practicing and applying our faith through the habit of prayer. 
And there's many opportunities, prayer meetings on Wednesday night for men on Saturday morning as well. There's monthly prayer calendars that are distributed. There's a weekly prayer bulletin that goes out for publication every week. There's regular emails when there's prayer needs in the church. There's birthday and anniversary lists that you can take and use to follow along to pray for those with birthdays and anniversaries every day. We, we desire for prayer to be part and parcel of all of our ministries. This is one of our ways that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. Our elders, they show and they prioritize this by a desire, their desire, to be present in our prayer ministries, even leading prayer on Sunday morning. It's an important, ongoing way we practice and apply our faith here at CNBC. Another is care. We make visits. We give cards and flowers. The other day, just yesterday, I saw Pastor Tom. We went out. We had a wonderful lunch with some of our widowers. And Pastor Tom had two boxes of peaches. Peach deliveries are coming, right? And we do these things just because we love and we care. There's people in our congregation that provide meals and transportation. We have ongoing and various service projects, fellowship with our widows and widowers. We have care priority lists that are available in, in the foyer for those of you that love to do these kinds of activities. There's uh, in the foyer list of folks that could use this kind of love and care. Phone calls can be made all different ways that as a congregation and a community, we're developing a spirit of care. Study. Study, an important way that we practice and apply our faith. After service on Sunday morning, we spend an hour in adult Bible fellowships. But we have children and youth ministries that are ongoing throughout the year because we believe the study of God's word is important and that the Holy Spirit works through that study to help bring maturity and to help those who are new or young in the faith develop and grow in Christ. There's Awana ministries, VBS, there's Bible quizzing for students, there's youth ministries. We have uh, various organic small groups that meet up, groups of people that just get together on their own and study the Bible or go over the sermon notes after a Sunday morning. Occasionally, there's seminars and guest speakers and topical studies. There's seasonal Bible studies for women. There's an annual women's retreat, a monthly men's discipleship hour, monthly opportunities for us to memorize and study the scriptures together in that way. And we give priority on Sunday morning to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. We believe that study is important in the practice and application of our faith in this community collectively. How about our community? We, we believe that we've been called to reach our community with the gospel. And not only that, but to develop opportunities for our fellowship here to enjoy a sense of community with one another. And so we go to places like the Spring Fling and we have events like the Great Giveaway and are present at places like the Solanco Fair. And we have our annual picnic where we fellowship and our Valentine's Day banquet where couples can come together and refresh one another and share in a meal. There's special services on Thanksgiving Eve and Christmas Eve and Good Friday, occasional hosting of concerts and events, and countless numbers of volunteer teams that work here in very various ministries behind the scenes that make this work. We have music ministry teams, tech teams, administrative support teams, ushers, greeters, more. Quarterly family life hours to help celebrate God's ongoing work 
in our congregation to build a sense of community. That white sheet that I uh, turned your attention to early, this is a way we develop community within our congregation here at CNBC. It's a way that we practice and apply our faith together in community. These aren't frivolous things. They're not simple systems that are man-made. They have great purpose and intention behind them. Every publication, every piece of literature meant to strengthen or build up one of the branches of the trellis. And then last but not least, certainly global. Global ministries. Oh, we love our global ministries here at CNBC. Supporting our, our partners that are serving the Lord and spreading the gospel all over the world. Once a month, we have a global partner here for a moment for missions. We do prayer inserts monthly in the bulletin. We have bulletin board updates out here in this hallway that are regular. We have our global partners at prayer meeting. This has been a, a kind of a new thing since the invention of Zoom and the use of Zoom, but we've started to be able to have our global partners Zoom in, I don't know, uh, somehow be present with us on Wednesday night in a really cool way uh, and just share updates about what God's doing in their ministry. And we've had Max from Ukraine with us. That was amazing. I mean, we've had Andy from Costa Rica with us. We've had people from all over the world. We had Emmanuel one time with us from Ghana at prayer meeting. I mean, this is incredible what we can do today. Jenna and Emily were able to zoom in from their locations and where they were serving. Uh, really amazing how we can support and encourage our global partners today. Friends, we still have an annual week-long conference every March. It's fun. It's a lot of work, but it's fun. I know all of you that attend enjoy it. It's one way we support and encourage our global partners and grow our awareness of the importance of this ministry going into all of the world and sharing the good news of the gospel. And these are just five priorities here at CNBC that we practice. These are just five ways that we encourage our community here to remain mindful of the reality that God is alive and at work. He is doing things in our community, both here and he's encouraging those here to go out and reach others with the good news of what he's doing. Wonderful. That these are two actions. There's a third in the text. So disciples of Jesus are transforming. Disciples of Jesus are practicing and proving the faithfulness of God. And as they do this, it's incredible to watch disciples of Jesus consistently maturing in their faith. Friends, one of the best ways for us to grow in our faith, one of the best ways to grow in love, to grow in community, is to get involved, to serve Yes, we're reading and we're praying and we're studying God's word together, but serving in one of these ministry areas is a beautiful way. Volunteering is a beautiful way to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and to grow and to mature in the faith. Reflecting on this particular action of ongoing Christian maturity, Paul writes to an ancient Christian community that was gathered in Philippi, and he says this, So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Watch this. Continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Oh, we lose that sometimes, don't we? 
Sometimes all of us probably would admit that there's been seasons in our lives where we've lost that awe and reverence. I've found in my life that when I dive in, when I serve, when I jump into something that's so much bigger than myself, that that awe and reverence, that sense of that need of dependence on God comes right back front and center. And it's reignited again. Verse 13, for the one bringing forth. Now watch this again. We're not getting up, splashing the cold water on my face, saying, I can do this. I'm going to get out there and do it. Watch it. Watch, watch. For the one bringing forth in you both, both, both the desire and the effort. Do you see that? Not me. For the sake of his good pleasure is God. I wonder. I can't walk away today. Something's going on with my micro, my, with my, I almost said microwave. I hope I don't have one of those up here. I'm like getting hungry. Something with my microphone. Something's going on. They won't let me leave the pulpit. I got to behave. I'm sweating up here today. It's good. I wonder if, 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 if part of this life of walking by faith is just believing that as we're obedient, God is going to prove his faithfulness by being who he says he's going to be and by doing what he says he is going to do through us. Just trusting and believing, and we sing it from the time we're little up. Remember we talked about that last week? We sing the most important parts of our faith. I remember ever since my mom and dad carried me into the church, probably the first hymn I ever memorized. We sang, I feel like, every week at Grace Church at Willow Valley. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Right? We could, we could all probably, if I just started, you could probably all just keep going. This is what it looks like. Just believing that God is going to do it. He's going to do it. We walk by faith in obedience and God is going to show up because that's what God does. That's who he is. And it's what he's always done. It's a reminder that our sanctification, it's another word for describing the process of Christian maturation, is God-ordered. It's spirit-led work. And as we mature, Paul's challenge in Romans 12 is that we would be able to know what is good, what is pleasing, what is complete or mature. The word that best encompasses that is the word shalom as it pertains to God's will for our collective Christian communities and our individual lives. Obedience leads to practice and practice leads to maturation and the goal of maturation is to find ourselves regularly living into the will of God for our lives. And as we do this, Paul challenges us not to lose our awe and reverence, to maintain that, to remain captivated and invigorated by the boundless and incomprehensible God of the universe who has redeemed us through his son, Jesus. And then the application, the application, that's what the rest of Romans is all about. 
Romans, some people have, have, have broken up Romans in two this way. 1 through 11, orthodoxy, right? Doctrine, thinking. And 12 through 16, orthopraxy, practice, right? Some, some break it up that way. But, but I like to break it up just by saying Romans 1 through 11, mercies of God. Romans 12 through 16, how we live in view of those mercies. And if you just peruse through the rest of chapter 12, just chapter 12, it's incredible. What does it look like for Christian communities and the individuals who are part of them to grow into maturity in Christ? What would that look like if it was happening here in our community at CNBC? And what would it look like if it was happening in our individual lives? Verse 3, there'd be a humility, a corporate and individual humility and a blossoming of faith. Verse 4, we recognize that we're part of a larger body. There are no lone rangers. Verse 5, that we, this is hard, but it's true. It's right there. We belong to one another. In a land that loves independence, that's a hard one. We belong to one another. Verses 6 through 8, we're given a variety of gifts to use in proportion to our faith. We're to practice them with sincerity, with diligence and cheerfulness as they've been assigned to us. Verse 9, to love without hypocrisy, to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Verse 10, to show devotion to one another, expressing mutual love and honoring one another. Verse 11, avoiding going through the motions or being on autopilot, but showing an eagerness or a zeal in serving the Lord. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, enduring in suffering, persisting in prayer. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Verse 14, blessing those who persecute us. Not cursing, not complaining, not grumbling, not moaning. Blessing. Blessing. Learning how to get along with one another for the sake of God's glory and the good of our body. Verse 15, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Weeping. With those who weep. Verse 16. Living in harmony with one another. With a willingness to associate with the lowly. Not growing prideful or conceited. Verse 17. Not repaying anyone evil for evil. Instead considering what is good before all people. Verse 18. Living peaceably with all people. As much as it depends on us. Verse 19, not seeking vengeance, but allowing God's wrath to work as he's determined. And then verses 20 and 21, feeding, feeding our enemies, giving them a drink if they are thirsty, showing them love, even in the face of persecution, ridicule, or hatred, ultimately overcoming evil with good. Greater is he that lives within me. Greater is he that lives within you. Greater is he that lives within us.
than he that is in this world. Amen? It is true. If we wonder what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is, we need look no further than Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 21. This is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. Living in this manner, we can be confident that we are actively walking in God's will for our life. As our team comes today to close us by singing Cornerstone, let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's words today, for his testimony of faithfulness. Lord, we know it was so hard. We know that the challenges were many for the church that he was writing to. And Father, we're honest as we express that the challenges are many for our church today. Just like it was for the church in Rome, challenges from within and without the church in America today, there are challenges from within and without. And Lord, we want to remain faithful. We want to remain aware. And we want to respond appropriately by recognizing the transforming work that the Spirit is having in ourselves and in our communities, by practicing and proving your faithfulness as we live out and apply our faith in our daily lives. Lord, make us useful. Help us to trust and to obey that you are alive, that you are active, and that you are working. And we want to give you the glory and thank you in advance for all that you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.